Are you an ambitious, driven entrepreneur starting to feel overwhelmed, maybe a little trapped by your business? Well, I have a solution for you. It is the five-day bottleneck to breakthrough challenge, where in an hour a day, we will give you the roadmap, the blueprint, the treasure map to where you can find yourself with more free time, more freedom of money, and a more valuable business. Hope to see you soon www.bottlenecktobreakthrough.com. Today, I'm excited to have my guest, Megan McCarthy, and she is the founder of RO Carbon Labs. We're going to talk about some really interesting advancements in the field of blockchain and energy and how they all come together. It's a good one. So see you on the other side. This is The Real Bottom Line where we tell entrepreneurial stories about true grit and perseverance from frontline business owners themselves. Now, let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Real Bottom Line. Today, I'm excited to have my guest, Megan McCarthy, and she is the founder of RO Carbon Labs. Welcome, Megan. Thank you. Really appreciate you having me. Uh, I'm very excited about our conversation because we're going to talk about some really interesting advancements in the field of blockchain and energy and how they all come together. But first, I'd kind of like to understand you have such a rich and varied path. You have been in um, IT and all kinds of things and entrepreneurship for a while now. How did you fall into that? What drives you on that? And how did you get from there to where you are now? For sure. So let's see how not long I can make this story <laughs> since I've been a little bit all over the place. But, um, you know, I'm from Calgary originally. So I started my career in oil and gas and mm -hmm. engineering because um, that's just what you do in Calgary. You go, you know, where all the money is and it's an oil and gas and you become an engineer to do that. So that's where I was at University of Calgary taking that. And, you know, then I ended up doing some traveling. I went backpacking around the world oh. for a year and I went to Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, you know, Southeast Asia, Australia where I worked. So that was interesting. I worked for the um, largest investment bank in Australia in 2008 when Bear Stearns collapsed. Oh. So, so that was quite an interesting experience in itself. Um, and then from there, you know, after traveling, I went, you know, I just, I'm kind of a hippie at heart. I'm really not, you know, into the oil and gas. I know that's kind of the big Calgary thing, but I really need to look at this engineering path. It's not making me happy. So that's when I learned at Dalhousie for the first time, they had a sustainability degree you could pair with business. And I thought, you know what, my whole trip, that was what I was noticing was pollution and stuff I thought could change. And I had all these ideas and problems I wanted to solve. So I thought, geez, you know, that kind of sounds perfect for me. So transferred, ended up coming all the way to Halifax to do this program. And, um, you know, it's, it just really blossomed into, into what I love. I found, um, ended up connecting with Dr. Larry Hughes and he was using wind turbines to heat homes for the first time in the world oh, wow. in okay. Summerside PEI. Yeah. And so I was really lucky. I got to glom onto his research, help with the demand side management piece and, um, you know, talk about all these amazing numbers, you know, we're saving people like $900 a year on their heating bills using 90% wind power to heat homes and making the utility an extra, you know, 65% revenue because we're transferring everybody off of oil heating. 
That's like a win-win altogether. A big win-win-win. So I was really thinking to myself at the end of it, you know, and Dr. Um, Ed Leach came up to me one day the on the business side and said, you know, Megan, I see you doing all this cool stuff with the engineering side and, you know, but he's like, here's this crappy Blackberry. Like, what are you doing here? You know, do you even know what an app is? This is 2011. He goes, why don't you come to this startup weekend thing that I'm hosting for the first time? I was like, okay, I'll check that out. And so I ended up winning startup weekend with this idea because he really encouraged me, you know, oh, this would be really cool as an app. You should really check out what this means. And I thought, well, this is kind of the way business is going. So yeah, we happened to win the whole startup weekend. We applied to the international one. There was like 120 cities. We got 15th. And so everyone's like, oh, you're kind of a startup entrepreneur now. So that was, you know, 2011. And ever since I've just been going down this path of energy data type startups. Mm -hmm. And while I was on that path, you know, I was at the local technology accelerator here, Volta, working around, you know, a lot of other amazing entrepreneurs. And my friend there one day comes up to me, he's like, hey, someone gave me these like Bitcoin miner things. You want to just like come over to my house and hang out and check them out? And I was like, yeah, yeah. Like, let's go do that. So, you know, just messing around with this technology and looking into it together and eventually, you know, figured out that they had this big conference down at MIT. I was like, well, I could just like borrow a car. I could just go drive down. We don't even need tickets and I'll just check it out. And so just happened to, you know, talk to a few movers and shakers and they said, you should really start a club at your university. That's what will really make this big. So we founded the Dalhousie Blockchain Club and um, we were the second after Simon Fraser University to install a Bitcoin ATM on a campus in the world. Wow. Yeah, at the same time. So that was what we were trying to use to help kind of fund some of the club, kind of do this unique business opportunity with it. And of course, you know, Bitcoin's sort of a little bit of the Wild West still. So <laughs> the company we worked with didn't survive. So, you know, we ended up moving on from that, doing a bit of consulting together. But that was really where my whole background came from. And then, you know, I had exited my last startup my energy data startup in kind of a small way and I thought you know this is my chance like I, I just really want to marry these two loves of mine together for the first time and figure out how this works and so here we are and then RO Carbon was born in 2018. That's exciting so at what point aren't you a startup? Yeah great question <laughs> the never-ending startup journey <laughs> I think probably you know um this is this is finally the time I've had several startups that I've been involved with that I either you know my contract ended with that startup in order for me to move on before we kind of got past that sort of stage or with my own startups it either failed for a variety of reasons you know poor partnerships not enough money you know was too young didn't you know didn't know what I didn't know type stuff um so you know I think you know we're on the verge of closing around, that'll be my first kind of big successful raise as an entrepreneur. So I would, you know, say that probably officially signals the end of me saying I'm in a startup. <laughs> That's exciting. Oh, I want to understand the round thing a bit more. So yeah. uh, when you close a round of financing, what does that mean? How does it work? And where do you find your investors? Yeah, well, it means we all do a really special dance for a while first. <laughs> The dog and so, ponies. I know, right? So one of the funniest things that um, I'd heard in a while, Steve Blank, I don't know if that name rings a bell to you, but he's kind of the um, the brains behind and the founder of the lean canvas, like the lean startup model. Um, so, you know, I was just lucky enough to happen to meet him a couple of times. And he told me one day, you know, and I was asking like, you know, tell me about funding and how do you get funding and that sort of thing. And he's like, you know, Maggie's like, 
don't get too excited about funding because funding is basically the equivalent of buying condoms from the store. It's like, you know, yeah, you got it. You have all these plans with it, but you know, you really haven't, you know, done anything yet. You just, you just have the tools that you need. So <laughs> in a nutshell, that's kind of it, right? Because entrepreneurs are usually like, yes, I'm going to get, you know, this 200 grand and then like everything's going to be better, but it never is. It's just you know, a whole new adventure and a different level of your journey, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so that's kind of, you know, where we're at is just really preparing ourselves for that next stage and that really big explosive scaling stage. Um, and trying to make sure that, you know, our systems are, are ready for that injection of money, that it's not just, you know, something to kind of, you know, there's been a lot of keep us afloat, head above water type talk in this startup type stage, right? So, so that's really, I think, where we're going to be more is, you know, in more of this execution, hyper strategized, you know, really trying to effectively fire execute, on all cylinders. Execute, yeah. execute. Almost exactly. like traction. Feels like a traction stage. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Expand on those little tidbits of traction that we do have now. The interesting thing I see in the startup world too, is for the CEOs and the founders like yourself, that they go get some money, they do some stuff, then they have to go get more money. Um, I feel like it's a little bit of a treadmill for founders sometimes that they're always trying to get more funding. How does, do you, would you agree yeah. with that? Yeah, I think it's a real choice. You know, I've seen some entrepreneurs that are very staunch and like, we do not take VC funding. And, it, and it's a real choice, right? Because yeah. you are kind of giving up control of your company for the first time. Um, mm. your, you know, your baby is some people call it to, to other people. And that's a risk because maybe they don't, they don't see your vision or maybe they don't see you as the ultimate founder and you don't know they have this kind of underlying reason to push you out. Or, you know, there could be a lot of things that, that just change with that stage. So, you know, it's just kind of important to be aware of what you're getting yourself into. And if that's the right path, you know, speaking of lean canvas, I've always been the biggest proponent of how can we run our company as lean as possible, you know, and just really bootstrap, which we've been doing, you know, up until now to, to just, you know, make sure people want this thing before we go and raise a ton of money and keep raising money and keep raising money. Cause of course we see this a lot with some of these kind of big deals, Silicon Valley products, especially, and you see these big flops and it's like, well, did they sell anything or did they just raise money the whole time? So well, it's see, a balance. What's interesting for me, when I look at your organization, you guys actually have clients. It's not just proof yeah. of purchase. You have people who are giving you checks every month. Yeah. And one of the big ones is Ikea. Like yeah. that's amazing that you have that as a client. How did that happen? Yeah. So, you know, just I don't know, being as clever as humanly possible, I guess, <laughs> really just trying to be resourceful. Mm -hmm. You know, here, I think being in Nova Scotia, we're kind of lucky as entrepreneurs where people say, oh, Megan, oh, the Bitcoin girl, or oh, Megan, the energy girl, you know, and it's sort of like, well, I sure couldn't be that back home in Calgary or, right. you know, so you can really kind of make a name for yourself in this small area. So of course, that's, you got to be careful because you can burn bridges easily. But so, you know, that was kind of, you know, one thing that I leaned on really to get these kind of higher level connections. And then from there, you know, we we're just clever. I work 
um, in a shared office space with some other women um, who own a sustainability branding agency locally. Mm. And so we came together and we're just like, you know, how do we leverage all this cool stuff we're doing together? And we thought, well, let's, we all know sustainability people. Let's start some networking. Let's just like have people over for some drinks Fridays. So this ended up expanding into tours of buildings. And so, you know, we happened to get, you know, these connections to Ikea and said, hey, could we bring some sustainability professionals by for a tour? going through their building, I said, my God, you guys have top of the line stuff. And like, you must be collecting tons of data with this. What are you doing with it? And they said, I don't know, you know, these things beep at us sometimes, we're not sure what to do about it. So I kind of went, oh my goodness, like, let me help you, you know? So, you know, just being able to kind of build off some of that credibility that I had built up in the community, trying to approach it from a really resourceful kind of unique angle, you know, and, and just trying to get myself in there as this trusted type of advisor in a unique situation where I could have, you know, a conversation like that, that I might not be able to do in more of just a cold call type set. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. super cool. So tell us a bit about, so the work you do is for buildings, correct? Yeah. For buildings and, and suppliers um, of products, services that reduce carbon okay. in buildings. Yeah. That's awesome. So tell us what exactly who would hire you and what would you do for them? Yeah, for sure. So a solar company would work with us, for example, or a building owner that wants solar. And so we would work with, you know, the engineers, the installers, that sort of thing on the upfront portion where we would be collecting all kinds of data from your building. What we really need is like a baseline to compare to what was going on in the past, you know, versus what's happening now that we integrated some lower carbon stuff. And so once, you know, we get all this data together, we can start taking a look at that. Then these great partners that we have will take a look at your data and say, hmm, it looks like all your heat is going overnight. That's odd. Maybe we should take a look at that. And so this is where, you know, the data can really start pointing to these kind of low hanging fruit opportunities. You know, we go into some of the most energy efficient buildings in Canada and we still see stuff that just will blow your mind. But without the data, I mean, you don't know what you don't measure, right? Yeah. So, so it really starts there, um, make those recommendations. And then, you know, we're going to say, well, here's all your options. Here's the stuff you can do to change what's going on in your building. Typically at that stage, what happens is a building owner goes, man, I really want to do this. Cause nobody ever says, no, Megan, I don't want to save energy. I don't want to save money. Right? Like that's not the kind of no we get to our sales. It's just, you know what, Meg, I think we're five years off of this, you know, from doing solar on our roof. We just don't have the money right now. So where we come in and what's um, the big innovation that we have is that we work with the voluntary carbon market. Okay. So I can... Yeah. So um, forget everything you know about what the government's doing, about the province, about Trudeau, about, you know, Rob Ford. None of that doesn't matter. The voluntary market is borderless. It's all around the world. People like Tree Canada, Bullfrog Power, ones that you might be really familiar with within our borders. Mm -hmm. um, so what it is, is that it's not mandated whatsoever. It's like a mortgage. It's like art. So whatever anybody wants to pay for carbon, that's what the price is set at. Okay. So there's kind of rough numbers like mortgages, you know, that you would sort of expect to see. Um, but in the past, there's been different types of credits and offsets available. Whereas this automated type of offset from a building that we're offering just really hasn't been available before now. 
And a big piece of that is because 87% of this voluntary carbon market up until now has been processed on paper and between two humans. So, you know, it's really been lacking technology and it's because it's really just been growing and, and gaining steam. So to give you an example of how big it is, you know, it's been doing up until this year about um, $300 million in transactions in the voluntary market annually. Um, they thought that was going to be down with COVID. Actually, 2021 was the first year it was above a billion. And Mark Carney has predicted he thinks that will be about $150 billion by 2030. Mm-hmm. Um, and then depending on who you talk to, you know, they're predicting likely over a trillion by 2050. So this market is, it's kind of rare that we get an opportunity within our lifetime to be on the bottom floor, the brand new entrance of a brand new commodities market. It's really intriguing. Carbon is now a commodity and there is a commodity market for it. Absolutely. Okay. So back to your example of the person who needed solar to help them out. So how are you connecting them to that market? How does that work? Yeah. So in the past, what used to happen is you would go to a consultant and you would say, Hey, you know, I've got a hotel. Um, you know, I want to tell the world I'm net zero. What does that look like? And they would say, well, we have this sticker you can put on your door that says I'm a net zero hotel. It'll cost you eight grand for that sticker. And then they say, now you have to commit to our consultant coming in the building and they're going to walk around, do a whole bunch of calculations, methodologies, take a bunch of guesses as to what's going on. And that's going to start at hundred thousand dollars a year. So this is, I'm telling you real prices that someone I know was told for less than a 10 bedroom hotel. Oh my goodness. So it's been prohibitively expensive up until now. Yeah. Right. So, you know, what the voluntary market is really built for is to say this carbon price made this project lucrative enough for you to go ahead and do today because it's built to solve climate change faster. Right. So if we can get everybody going solar today, this is great because we're reducing so much carbon that we would have put out otherwise over this next 25, 30 years that the panels will be up. So that is what that carbon price is built for. So basically now what we can say, now that we have all this data from the building, we say, hey, like, here's the stuff that your building needs. Here's what you can do. Here's what the outcome will be. Oh, it's going to be five years away. I can't afford it. Well, hey, you know, your panels are big enough that it looks like you're going to offset a hundred tons of carbon a year. If I can get you $165 a ton on that carbon, Here's what your payback's going to be instead of a 12 year payback. You know, you now have a two year payback. Is this going to be enough for you to go ahead and do right now? So this is exactly what we're bringing to the table in terms of these carbon reduction, sustainability, impact driven type projects. And the bigger the impact, the higher the price we're going to give you. So anytime that your project brings anything that aligns with the UN 17 sustainable development goals, Anything that can be reported on in terms of these environmental, social governance type reports that are now like this is becoming mandatory. People are having to disclose now on top of their typical accounting. You have to disclose what you're doing for the environment, carbon, this type of thing if you're a larger company. So, you know, it's um, it's just becoming something everybody's looking to do. So, um, you know, that, that's what's really exciting is that not only are these all these building owners that we can now hook up with technology that's very, very affordable 
to automate this process without having people with clipboards up and down their building. But we can get this much higher premium price because we've also come up with a really innovative system to be able to tack on this additional premium aside from just that base carbon for all this additional impact driven stuff that companies are going to be adding to that as well. So these may be stupid questions and I apologize, but so to understand, no, so, so the solar, the solar guy puts it in, he gets it yeah. two years back, right? Um, so basically you establish the base mark and then you see, this is how much carbon you saved. And this is how we're going to monetize that. We're going to take it to the market and we're going to sell it for say $165 a ton. Yeah. So in year three, is that now a source of revenue for him? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. So that's, what's really exciting is that with solar, with carbon reduction projects, not only are you going to get the savings now, there's this whole new world. I can drive a whole new line of revenue to you for you having gone and done the right thing. The other really exciting thing, and this is why we do this payback model when we first work with clients, because, you know, what does 100 kilowatts of solar really mean to anybody? It's a very hard thing to conceptualize. Yeah. So, you know, we'll show what does that look like in my pocket over the next 30 years with that, you know, return from the solar itself and from this return on carbon, what we're trying to coin our name off of here. Um, so you'll see, you know, that a few things adjust over time. So for example, you know, technology dwindles over time, it depreciates, of course, so your solar in about 30 years, it's maybe about 80% less productive. Um, so that kind of stuff's taken into account, the grid's going to be improving over time, that sort of thing, right? However, the carbon price is slated to continue to rise. So a lot of companies like ours will say, oh, we're locking in for 28 bucks a ton for 20 years. Why? Because, you know, they could get the upside of this with a partner like us where, you know, the World Bank and the International Panel on Climate Change have thrown a few different numbers around, but they feel like the price should be somewhere upwards around $13,000 a ton by 2050 to really take into account the full carbon cost of what's going into product services. So, you know, that's, of course, debated, um, depending on the different scenarios, what that looks like, but that carbon price is slated to continue to rise for at least the next decade or so, based on all the scenarios. So that's something that's really exciting, too. Your business is making a profit. You're growing, but you may still feel like you don't fully have a grasp on how to make the best use of this success. Don't worry, you're not alone. Hi, I'm Wendy Brookhouse, creator of the Total Wealth Accelerator and host of this podcast. I've developed a quick and easy tool that will give you a detailed snapshot of where you're currently at in your business and wealth growth and how you can improve upon it. It's called your financial diagnostic score. It's completely free and you'll instantly get the results. So head over to TotalWealthScore.com right now and see where you can focus to grow your wealth. Who's on the other side of the transaction? Who's spending the money? So these large companies that now have to disclose what they're doing for the environment, for their ESGs, that sort of thing, it, it is now going to be mandatory. So a lot of these companies want to show, you know, geez, here's what we're doing. Here's the impact we're trying to make. Because we really value higher impact, we've been looking and working with a lot of Indigenous communities on projects as well right, to really make sure, because, you know, you talk to Indigenous communities, and of course, they're saying, like, well, guys, like, come on, we've been doing super sustainable stuff for thousands of years, and now we're just going to kind of ESG this. So, you know, it's a little bit, 
<laughs> doesn't make a lot of sense for them. But at the same time, it's sort of like, well, we're valuing these projects higher than any project. We know that this is going to be some of the highest impact that we can bring. So when we go and talk to large banks, for instance, they go, oh, oh my, we really want to invest in that because we have to report on all this stuff that we're doing. We can't do it all in-house. So where can we go do this? Where can we show that our dollars are really being spent in the right way? You know, they thought that with, you know, communities and remote areas, that sort of thing, they would only be able to work with trees with these communities. So the fact that we can bring buildings to the table, and this can be a really impactful measurement to an exact degree of exactly what happened in this project, that's really, really powerful for some of these larger banks and large companies that want to be able to report on where their dollars are being invested. So those are the some of the companies doing that. We talked to you know a lot of blockchain companies that get a lot of scrutiny for how much energy power they use. Right. Companies like that want to buy offsets. Companies that don't have control over their footprint. So, you know, someone who makes skincare, for mm -hmm. example, but they don't, they just lease their building and then they have a bunch of suppliers that make it all. You know, they, they don't have the ability to reduce their own footprint because they don't own their own assets, their own buildings. Mm -hmm. So they need to now go buy offsets to be able to say, hey, our skin cream is net zero. How is that, um, how is that changing in the eye of the consumer? I know it's, in, it's, in, it's um, becoming more important for a lot of uh, different segments of the market, but is that being measured? And if so, can you quantify that for me about how important that, that the company is ideal with is net zero or making efforts? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, it's interesting. Three, more than three quarters of the world now are under these government, you know, mandates to be net zero by 2050. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're, kind of all going there, but I don't think a lot of us quite know how. So with consumers, what's been interesting that we've seen when we've been testing our exchange is that with the consumers and the really small companies versus the big guys, the big guys are like, we got a strategy. We got ESG goals. We know exactly what we want to invest in. Yep. Here's what we want to invest in. Go find that for us. Right. But with these kind of smaller guys and, you know, consumers, what's interesting is they're kind of saying to us more like, ooh, show us what you got. We want to see your options. We want to see what's out there and what's available. We know that this is coming. We know it's going to be a big thing. So, you know, what can I do? What, what can I do to contribute? So people seem to be really in that research, seeking out mode, you know, feeling out their options and being aware you know, I think people underestimate how savvy consumers are sometimes, and they're pretty aware that, you know, there's these nonprofit studies out there, for instance, that have shown 91% of what's been sold on the volunteer market up to date has not lived up to claims. That's a big, big number. So, you know, I think consumers and people have been pretty aware of this. We've had some, you know, interesting meetings of people sort of saying like, dad, this is not a credible thing. And, you know, because, because they've been aware. So I think people are in this big, you know, search and find mode, what's out there, what's actually credible, I want to help, like people are hungry to help. That's what we find more so than anything is that the buyer side, we have a, a lot more hungry people than you would think on that side, just ready and waiting for really good projects to come along that they want to be a part of. That's so cool. Is yeah. that where the term greenwashing comes from? Yeah, 100%, 100%. People aren't being quite truthful, but they're, or they are all uh, honestly putting money uh, numbers that aren't real out 
Well, that's right. And because, you know, the typical projects that have existed on the voluntary market up until now have been, you know, forestry projects, which are notoriously difficult to measure, of course, Mm. you know, if you're not keeping an eye on all these trees, you know, some of them can die, let alone forest fires, they do take into account, you know, a lot of these types of things that could happen to trees. So it is more credible than people might think. But a lot of those methodologies and stuff, again, it's not really technology that can just plainly say, this is an audited piece of technology. Here's the number to two decimal places of trees. That's that's really difficult to do. And the same with switching out stoves. That's another really standard project is going somewhere like Rwanda, helping replace stoves that are you know coal or that have been making people sick and releasing a lot of carbon. So it's a good impact project because it, you know, helps the UN goals of, you know, helping health and poverty. So those type of projects, they're very hard to measure and it's very subjective based on, again, guesstimates, methodologies, that type of thing. Um, So, you know, that's what we've really seen. And I think with this new age of bringing in technology and, you know, maybe this is a good segue to the blockchain side is, yeah. How do you tie blockchain into all of this? Yeah, I mean, blockchain technology at its heart is immutable, meaning it cannot be changed. So if I'm putting something in your building, or I'm saying to a solar supplier, you know, I'm going to measure what you're doing, but I need the ability to kind of deploy these things independently, have these suppliers deploy them, how am I going to make sure the solar supplier is not kind of ha ha and, you know, in there changing these numbers, because he knows how lucrative it's going to be now. Right. Right. So this is where I kind of thought to myself, wow, you know, if we really leverage that part of the blockchain where anything that we grab and capture into that piece, it's going to be, you know, nearly impossible to change those numbers. Mm -hmm. We can really help people self-report and automate this process that's been just so laborious and manual up until now. So that's really where that thought started. Then where this expanded to, when we tokenize, and this is, you know, for anyone that's a customer, this is going a little far into the weeds, so hopefully I don't confuse you too much. But expanding on that, you know, every building we go into is totally unique. Even, you know, every IKEA we work with, totally unique. You would think they're all just copy pasta, but it's just not really possible, you know every area is different technologies. You know, I grew up in Alberta. I was mind blown when I came to Nova Scotia that there were oil tanks here you had to fill up, right? Like just everywhere is really different in terms of what you have access to. So, you know, an NFT, a non-fungible token, this is all the rage lately, right? All Mm -hmm. the ugly pieces of art that you see out there are worth $10 million or you know, these NFTs. What, What is this good for? So an NFT, it's at its heart is a unique digital asset. So it's kind of the digitized version of a building. It has all these unique components to it that describe uniquely what's going on in this in this one situation. So, you know, we've been using that to be able to, you know, hold all this data, all this proof in this NFT that is unique to this building so that we can individually price and value the impact that every single project, every single building is bringing without the, because, you know, a Bitcoin is a Bitcoin is a Bitcoin, which is fungible. They're all worth the same amount, but we really want to value these projects different. So, Mm. so that's where we've, you know, tried to leverage this technology to be able to offer that. 
It seems to me, and uh, or I'm, I'm going to ask a question. So using your technology where you've, you've got it so documented, so basically, um, I'm not going to use the word guaranteed, but really it's all, it's provable, all this stuff, mm -hmm. all the numbers. Does that mean that someone using your system would have carbon offsets that may be more valuable than the ones that aren't proven? Well, that is exactly what we are sure hoping, Wendy. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely. And, you know, that's a big part of why we use technology and blockchain as well. Um, what I'm following is, you know, aside from kind of looking at what these older legacy companies have done, you know, kind of without this technology, is that we're following this blueprint that's been put out by something called the Task Force for Scaling the Voluntary Carbon Markets. Mm -hmm. This is led by the famous economist Mark Carney along with Bill Winters. And they've assembled 400 experts from around the world through this body to come together and try to determine, you know, what does this look like? If we want to scale this up, what's a blueprint we can put out there for companies like Megan's to follow, yeah. to say, hey, you know, this, these are the steps you need to take to really make this work and make this work as it was intended to as something to solve, to mitigate climate change faster. So that's what we've been following to a T since this is sort of all these brilliant minds have come together to you know figure this out especially if they end up mandating it you know we want to be on top of that yeah but really you know some of the biggest pieces of this are you know the anti-money laundering knowing your customer all these things that blockchain really solves you know eliminating double spending you know, just a lot of things that you know i knew blockchain in its sort of inherent use is why we've seen the implementation we have of the blockchain with bitcoin sometimes people get those confused they are different bitcoin is like an app that is built on the blockchain i think so of, the, tell me if this characterization i say blockchain is like intel inside it's like the chip that's in making everything run yeah, almost. It's like, you know, like HTTP for the internet, right? Like no one really talks about this internet protocol. They just talk about cool websites. So Bitcoin's like the cool website, right? That's so, so yeah. So the blockchain technology is really the thing that enables this immutability and this, you know, ability to know your customer transparency, not have double spending issues. So as soon as I saw some of these things in the blueprint, I know, oh, geez, if we can figure out how to, you know, pair this with the blockchain, this is going to be really powerful. So, so that was, you know, really how this all came together. And then finally, another last component of this blockchain piece is a smart contract. Yeah. So the additional thing that you can do with this, because, you know, it's all technology based is that you can have, it's almost like having shares or having, you know, access. So, you know, let's say at Ikea here in Halifax, we come up with this great model. We save Ikea 40%, great round number. Um, so, you know, 40% and Home Depot goes, hey, we have buildings like yours. How'd you guys do that? And Ikea says, well, this is kind of like, you know, intellectual property to us, but we could sell you access to this digitized record of all the stuffs we took. So it's this smart contract capability that allows you to do smart things with this data as well in the future, mm. right? So we can kind of keep leveraging this data and keep adding value because again, in this wanting to mitigate climate change as fast as we can, if we have a bunch of companies protecting all this great data of how we fix climate change, what good, what good is that gonna be for us? <laughs>
Yeah. Um, so it's an exciting piece of technology that we can use in a bunch of different ways to kind yeah. of solve all these little components of problems that come together to, to make up this complicated blueprint that they've put out. That's really exciting. I think that yeah. sounds like it's going to be the gold standard, so to speak. Of yeah. 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 And it's funny, the UN's actual carbon market that they run is called the gold standard. Ah, okay, cool. <laughs> so there you um, go. Yeah. So it strikes me um, so interesting for so many people, whether it applies to you or not, just even the journey. But what strikes me is all of us in entrepreneur land want to figure out how to innovate, how to solve problems. Do you have a methodology you use? How do you stay and be innovative in different markets or different ways you do things? How, how are you setting yourself up to be innovative? Yeah. So, you know, I always, always, always revert to that lean canvas. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can get it free all over the internet. There's a million videos on how to do it, but you know, I, I've even taught, you know, we hooked up schools all across Nova Scotia. I taught creative fives and sixes, the lean canvas, and just, it's so simple for helping you I, I found a problem. How do I fix this? What are my assumptions? Laying those out simply in one page. We don't need to do a 40 page business plan anymore. You know, mm. am I, am I really solving my problem? Are my assumptions going to be something people are even interested in yeah. testing those assumptions with people? You know um, I think that's kind of the crucial, crucial piece that I always go from because you know, ideas are a dime a dozen. I come up with a hundred really cool ideas a day, but at the end of the day, once I've run them all by everyone and everyone's like, that's crazy, that's ridiculous, you know, then it's like, you're left with a two. So it's just, you, you really got to do that process. Um, mm. and, and, you know, to kind of get those ideas in the first place, um, I am a huge Reddit junkie. <laughs> Yes, yes. Reddit all day. <laughs> Whenever I have a moment, just checking out, you know, the science channels and the business channels and the carbon and the environment and just the news, what's out there, what's going on, hearing other problems, you know, dreaming up ways to fix them. So just always trying to, you know, get new information in my brain to Yes, I call See it the Reddit it rabbit something. hole. Um, I'm not going down it, but my husband is. And sometimes yeah. I'm asking him about current events and saying, okay, what are they saying in Reddit? Because I sometimes think that that might be the most unbiased place to get my news sometimes. People really police each other on there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But yeah, no, it's um, it, it's been the source of many a great business idea for me. And I had even come across some interesting technology on there that I was, you know, thought that's fascinating. It was for medical uses. And I thought I could use this to, you know, to use in oil and gas and to help mitigate environmental issues. And I was even looking at licensing technology I had found on Reddit one day, like it's just, it's a really fascinating place to just categorize and sort information, you know, not just, am I the asshole or, uh, cat videos. It's got all the, all the good things. Everybody always asks us who our biggest competitor is. And I think it's cat videos. Like the amount of time people have for cat videos in their life is shocking. Um, what haven't I asked you that you think, um, I should have. Good question. Good question. I mean, I guess I think the biggest thing with the carbon markets and this kind of premium price point that we talk about, especially where, you know, that's really sort of the, a big part of our secret sauce 
yep. is this automated calculation to weight all these great additional things that you're doing against, you know, what these UN sustainable development goals and that sort of thing are. You know, I had someone say to me like, oh, well, aren't you trying to make this cheap? And aren't you trying to make this affordable enough, you know, so that anybody can kind of buy this and offset their carbon? Like, what about, you know, young people that want to offset their flights, whatever this may be? And it really goes back to that, you know, the, the IPCC and the World Bank, what they have is called the High Level Commission on Carbon Pricing and saying it has to be closer to this $13,000 mark by 2050. The reason they say that is because there is a true cost to carbon, a cost that we are all going to pay dearly for, whether it's in healthcare for the pollution we're breathing in or, you know, the things that we're just not taking into account right now, the transportation for all this plastic to get certain places, that sort of thing. So, you know, this price, the higher it is, the faster and the better we're going to be able to mitigate climate change. So, you know, that's really why we need to look at making these premium prices more of the norm right now, where the mandated market's more of this $40, $50 a ton kind of thing. Trudeau saying it's going to go up to 170 ton a ton by um, 2030. You know, Bill Gates is paying 500 bucks a ton today, of course, just because he can. But, you know, this is this is where we have the opportunity to where people say, how do I get involved? Like, let's make this the norm. Let's make these prices the norm. I say $165 a ton is our base price because if you go on Bullfrog Power's website today, they ask people to pay $16.50 a month and that works out to, you know, a ton a ton a year and then or a ton every 10 months type of thing and it's 165 a ton you're paying. So, mm. you know, it seems to be the accepted price people are paying now. Um, that's just for, you know, energy going onto the grid that we don't really know where that energy is being used. So what we're talking about is we can measure this to the penny that it is the exact permanent reduction in someone's specific building. So you can go invest for Nova Scotia's first green food bank. You can go invest in, you know, a Northern indigenous town that's been having a hard time. You can really Put your money to work and this is really how things can move fast so i think that's important for people to know it's not about trying to reduce costs which is kind of that opposite mentality that we normally have it's really about how can we make this more premium faster how do people get a hold of you megan give me an email megan m-e-g-a-n at rocarbonlabs.com thank you so much for your time today megan fascinating and the real bottom line here is, is that you can get a return on your carbon. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Real Bottom Line. This show is produced by Black Star Wealth. Executive producer, Wendy Brookhouse. To learn more about the show or to contact us, go to blackstarwealth.com.